Good morning, Hope Church. My name is Brian Enos, and I'll be reading today's scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 25. You can follow along in your Bibles. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Paran. A certain man in Maon, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him there in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and to your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take bread and water and a meat that I have slaughtered from my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, Each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from, from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, Go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, It's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness, so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord. And let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. 
And as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift, which your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, because you fight the Lord's battles, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I am your servant and am ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. David had also married a Hinnom of Jezreel, and they both were his wives. But Saul had given his daughter Michal, David's wife, to Paltiel, son of Laish, who was from Galim. Thanks for gathering with us this morning on the Lord's Day. Thanks to Glenna and our choir. I, I love the instruction she gives us on some of these old hymns and it's just so important that we continue to pass those along in the body of Christ through the generations. Thank you for your singing this morning and being here not merely as a customer, but as a, a, a brother and sister in Christ ministering to people even around you. And I hope that both before the service began and afterwards, that's exactly what each of us will do as we're able. I want to mention a change you might even find in your bulletin or have noticed that we don't have the scripture text in there. 
Um, if we had had the text for today in there, it would have been 17 pages, font 6. Uh, but honestly, the, the, the Old Testament becomes harder and harder. And, and we also uh, realize that this only began with COVID. So it was during COVID that we began to put it in the notes. Before that, we would encourage people to bring their Bibles and to use their Bibles, or simply use uh, a cell phone. Uh, and and we, we want to encourage that same thing. Um, so we will not be regularly including the text in there. Again, we, we, we highly revere the text. We literally, a 44-verse chapter, we just read the whole thing out loud. That takes some time and some pronunciations and some really hard words uh, of Hebrew names. But we want to do that. We think the actual reading as part of corporate worship is significant. But we want to encourage you then to bring your own Bibles, to use an app on your phone. There's a great one called Version, I think is what it is, that I regularly use. Again, no complaints about the medium. I can only imagine how third and fourth century Christians were frustrated when the codex began to be used and the older Christians were like, shouldn't we still be using scrolls, right? So whatever the medium, scrolls to codex to nicely leather-bound Bibles to computer technology, it's the message that we want, but it is actually good for us as individuals to be looking at the Bible. And I will, and the other pastors will, will teach from the text. Like we're not just going to springboard off of it, we will look at the details, Read a verse, mention a statement or a, a, a word. We'd love for you to have that. The, the other thing I wanted to mention is, and you may not have noticed last week, but this actually this week is the second week in a row that we've actually used the NIV, not the ESV. Now we've wrestled with that as a church for a long time. The ESV and the NIV, is, they're both very good versions. In fact, if, if I'm being honest or, or, or instructive for a moment, we are ridiculously blessed in the English language. A third of the world speaks English, and those English-speaking countries have a whole ton of money. So there has never been a time in human history where English speakers have more access to God's Word than we do now. And yet there are still several hundred languages, maybe people groups up in mountainous regions that are quite small, that do not have a Bible in their own language, which is remarkable. I remember meeting with a missionary a good seven years ago uh, from this region, was talking about and kind of looking for support and, and, and things for his ministry, and he handed me his Bible, and he wanted, me to sh- wanted, he wanted to show me a new translation. I opened up. It, looked like, it felt like a leather. It was a leather-bound Bible. Opened it up. All the pages were just white. And he was talking about a new translation yet to be written. And he described to me all the different people groups that do not have that uh, access to that. We are blessed. Now, as a church, for the last nine or so years, we've used the ESV with the adults. Before that, we actually used the NIV. Um, And in fact, our children have continued to use the NIV. So even though the adult ministry kind of switched, and in here we'd read from the ESV, our kids because of readability, never were able to switch to the ESV. It was too difficult for them to do because the language and the translation is a bit rougher. There is no theological reason why one should be preferred over the other. There's no exegetical reason, nothing. I literally am friends with people on both translation committees. 
right? They are godly men and women who have served on those translation committees. And I personally, with a degree in New Testament, have disagreed with decisions both translations have made. Um, because we're all going to, interpretation, or translation is interpretation. Uh, it's unavoidable that that's the case. But we have switched the last couple weeks to the NIV, uh, and the reading henceforth will be from that. We just want you to know that as you go on your own app or bring your own Bibles to be aware of that. If you need a Bible, you don't have one, we have Bibles we can give. So please, please ask us. Our text today continues the travels of David, but it's a different antagonist. So, so the last several chapters has been David against Saul. Here it's David against Nabal. Now, this is an interesting story, and as Carly rightly said, watch the different responses David gets from Nabal from he, than he gets from Abigail. And you just need to know something about their names. The, the Hebrew Bible loves to do things with names. So verse 25 gave the clue already, but the Hebrew word Nabal sounds just like the Hebrew word for fool. That's not like his mom looked at him and said, that kid looks dumb. Let's call him fool. Like, that's not exactly what happened. It just means the Hebrew has no vowels. It has just consonants, N-B-L. And you have to add vowels, and different vowels between the consonants give different words. So the reality is, is changing of one little vowel, and all of a sudden it goes from Nabal to the word in Hebrew that means fool. And clearly his behavior was such that that became... A, helpful way to describe who he was and how he acted. Abigail, his wife, is quite the opposite. The, the word Abigail means the joy of the father, joy of my father. You know the word Abba, it's in the New Testament, Abba, father. Abi is my father, right? Abi, my father, and Gail means to rejoice. So the joy of my father. Now in this text, the text wants you to think of those names. One, Nabal, who acts like a fool and is not to be emulated by us, the readers. And the other, Abigail, who brings joy to the father. And don't just think of her father. Think of the father, our Lord himself. So there's the, there's the thrust. And the, and, and the main point of our text today is right there in your notes Avoid the behaviors of a fool, Nabal, and adopt the behaviors that bring joy to the father, like Abigail, by offering hospitality and generosity to all who cross your path. There are several things we could speak about, but this text is wanting to talk about biblical hospitality, and we're going to talk about that as well. Pray with me, and then we'll look at the details of the text. Father, thank you for your word. And even just now, as we sit here to study your word, I think of the leading that Glenna just did for us as we, the word majesty is in my mind from singing that with my brothers and sisters. You are majestic and worthy of all praise. So we know that what your word will teach us today will not only be for our good, but for your glory. So help us, Father, to respond appropriately as your children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So David is in his journey, and he meets an interesting couple by the name of Nabal and Abigail. You already know their names. 
Now, Nabal is ridiculously wealthy. Now, I know you, don't, you and I don't translate that well, right? Verse 2, he, it, it, it tells us he was very wealthy, and then it gives a little bit of his economic profile, that he has a 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which means about nothing to you and me. But let me translate it. Imagine somebody with the wealth of Patrick Mahomes, who literally, statistically, one economic teacher told one of my children in their class this semester that Mahomes would actually make more money by not, based on what he makes per hour, by not picking up a $10 bill if it drops onto the ground because he would be wasting time with what he actually makes money making. Like he is so wealthy, he will never spend all his money. He could buy a new car every single day and not go through his income in one calendar year. Like wealth that you and I don't understand. Well, maybe you do, but most of us don't. Like the majority of us don't understand a contract for half a billion dollars. That's just not a category we have. Picture a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, like real wealth, like serious money. That's what the text wants you to think. It doesn't want you to think that the guy just got a nice house and a big backyard. It wants you to think of serious wealth. So you can see where this is going to go with hospitality. It's not like the guy's hurting. This guy's got more money than most. He's extremely wealthy. Now, David had been kind and hospitable to Nabal's men when they met them in a previous moment. At one point, David and his men are out, Nabal with his massive herd and all his servants kind of run into David and his men. And what did David do? They do hospitality. That's what you're supposed to do. You're kind. You, he, David says he protected his men from kind of raiders who might want to steal from the herd. They maybe offered water and bread to them as well because these guys are working out in the fields long hours late at night. David and his men have some resources that they share. And they just assume when they get near Nabal that he would return the favor. Yet the text tells us in its own interesting way that while Abigail was both intelligent and beautiful, Nabal was surly and mean. Surly, literally a servant later to Abigail in our text says he's basically a wicked man. And you can't talk to him. I don't know who would come to mind. Hopefully it's nobody you know who is just so self-righteous and self-important that you can't even talk to them. They have no time for you. They're interested in their own business and everybody around them is an inconvenience. You wonder why his wife says, uh, we call him the fool. He's surely in me. Like when the Bible is describing like that, you know it's serious. So David's men bump into Nabal. And David says, hey, go, go ask Nabal. Like see if we can get some hospitality back. Right? This is, this is an honor-shame culture. In an honor-shame culture, you are hospitable. And you're always trying to improve upon what was done toward you. That, that is very different in our world. Like we, our culture is not an honor-shame culture at all. Like really some of our most famous people have done the most shameful things, and that's actually what gives them fame. Right? I think of that famous book called The Image, written in the 50s, 
where it talks about that origin of like the celebrity culture, which said they are well known for being well known. They haven't done anything good. They're just well known, right? What have they accomplished? Have they accomplished something in science? Have they started a university? Have they fed them? Nope, they're just well known for probably a crude act and now they're famous and they're making millions off it, right? So that, we, we are not in an honor shame culture, otherwise that would never happen. Those people would be hiding in the dark. They would never show themselves. We would never find that attractive or alluring we wouldn't. In honor-shame culture, you had some way of functioning that is different. Think of honor in the ancient world like economics in our world today. Like economics drives decisions. It's how we think about value. We even have sayings like time is money. No, it's not. But it shows you the force of that cultural value in the Western world in America. So that's hard for us to honor shame where it's just expected that when you have an advantage or a situation you can benefit somebody, that you're wanting to do that. You're wanting to give honor. Maybe the translation would go this way. If you had a million dollars, you would expect to make some interest off that in a bank. If you weren't, you'd be like, this isn't working out right. Like there'd be some kind of gains you'd be getting. Honor is like that. You're expecting there to be some kind of gains so that you are giving to others and others are giving to you the same way there's an interest rate and you're gaining something economically. And when it's not given, you're frustrated. You're expecting some kind of interest given to you. You're ex they're expecting it from you. So that's the context that is so different from our world that is common in the Middle East, even today, where you can have maybe a young lady or a young man is violated, and even though the family didn't do it, it was some stranger on the street, the family receives the shame and feels like they must avenge it. That just sounds foreign to us in a modern Western world, but that is the Middle Eastern cultures even today and that is the culture in which we're living now. David and his men felt obliged to be giving and caring for Nabal's men when Nabal's men were near them. Now David is near Nabal and just assumes that it should be reciprocated. And if it is not, it is a slanderous, shameful, offensive act that needs to be justified. That's the context of this text. David sends his men... He greets them in verse 4. He, he, uh, he knows it's sheep shearing time. End of verse 4 says that. That means it's payday. That's ancient world for payday. It's harvest time. Like that's when you're the most generous. You're, 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 you're giving some of your overflow. Remember, this guy's Patrick Mahomes, Super Bowl quarterback, half a billion dollar contract. He's got some to spare. It's not like he's a small time little farmer. This guy is a billionaire. Give us a little something, will you? We're just asking for bread and water. He sends his men down. They give a very formal greeting, as you can see. Long life to you, good health to your household. Hey, we helped you. Little quid pro quo, you help us. That's our cultural way. David's men arrived. They gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then look at the end of verse 9. Then they waited. Notice that. There wasn't an immediate response. Nabal didn't jump out of his chair or off of his horse to immediately help them. He had them wait. Abigail, watch her response. Very different. Then Nabal answered David's servants. Here's what he says. 
Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? That's all ways in the ancient world of picking on someone's mama. Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? David is so offended, literally straps on his sword and he's going down to regain his honor. Again, alien in our world. Lots of questions biblically about was this what Jesus would do? But just note that there is the offense. Now the text switches. A very wise servant completely understands what's going, doesn't go say, hey, Nabal, quit acting like your name. He runs to Abigail and says, ma'am, we got a problem. Abigail hears and responds differently. She immediately, immediately prepares. Before she even gets there to talk to David herself, she sends the servants ahead with a list of things uh, that were read to us that are strange to us. Hey, anybody want a raisin cake? Uh, Not really. Is that like a bad granola bar? But whatever, in those days, it's actually the best food, the most expensive food you can imagine. She heaped onto the back of donkeys and rushed it out to David and his men. And then she herself finally gets there so that she can try to calm them down. To change the offense. He responds, David responds positively. His honor is appeased. David says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. This is verse 32. Who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hands. Again, right or wrong, good or bad, Abigail saved her own husband's life and maybe even the entire household, as David says, by the accent that she had. When Abigail returns home, what does she find? You can see this even in verse 36. Listen to this. When Abigail went to the ball, she was going to tell him what she did. He was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. Did you hear that? He was holding a banquet like that of a king. He didn't want to spare a little meat or a little bread and water, but he was hoarding for himself. She waited until the bit too much wine settled itself till the next morning, and then she went and told him exactly what she did. And when Nabal heard this, verse 34, his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. That's the Bible's way of describing the reality of his soul God allowed to affect his body. In fact, the text even says in verse 38, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. That's judgment language. If you don't think God takes biblical hospitality seriously, look at that verse. There's a lot of details we could talk about in this text, like David praising God 
for his judgment against Nabal, or David praising Abigail that he didn't have to kill her husband. Fair enough. Those are unique and could deserve some conversation. Or even the fact that David took another wife at the end of this story. In the least, we could say that David may be a type of Christ, but he needs Christ just as much as we do. But all of that would miss the larger message of this text. And that larger message is biblical hospitality. And I need to talk to us about that the rest of our time. Hospitality is a core Christian virtue. It is not an add-on. It is not not a if you want to. It's not a suggestion. It is a core biblical commandment that is mentioned in every single book of the Bible. Explicitly or implicitly, every single book touches it. Every book does not talk about heaven. Every biblical book doesn't talk about church and all those things. But every single book explicitly or implicitly talks about hospitality. You cannot do the love your neighbor if you do not exemplify hospitality. You simply cannot. Hospitality needs to be properly defined. It is not the same thing as entertainment with friends. It is not. If you have friends over for the Super Bowl and you share your nacho dip, well done. That is not hospitality. If you are having nacho dip, let me know. I'm your friend. If you have a niece and her annoying boyfriend over for Easter, well done. That is not hospitality. If it is anybody that you actually have some reasonable responsibility to be already doing something for, it is not hospitality. If it's anybody that there's some kind of beneficial gain that you would get from it, you enjoy their company, it is not biblical hospitality. Biblical hospitality is giving and caring for those you do not have any reason to do so. It's not like, well, I'm hospitable. I give my kids breakfast every morning. Well done. You're supposed to do that. That's not hospitality. That's parenting. That's not it. Well, I love having friends over and we love to play Dungeons and Dragons. Great. That's not hospitality. If you knew their name before they got there, it wasn't biblical hospitality. Hospitality means you have no connection and it comes at some kind of a cost. It is giving and caring for those who do not have any reason, you, you have no reason to do so, likely you don't even know, and doing so in ways that are generous and sacrificial. So no connection and great cost. If those two rules are not met, it is probably entertainment and not hospitality. So just realize what I'm saying now. For a lot of us, we probably like and are good at entertainment. We probably have not done that much hospitality. We just probably haven't. We are an economic culture that's sensitive about those things. We are highly protective in nature. We're not going to have a stranger's around or like sacred space, social zones, our our homes, our our neighborhoods are zoned to keep residential separate from others. We have have a garage and stores in the front, so any road access has to get through barriers, and we're in the backyard. Like we have tried to do all we can for protection and self-benefit our primary values of an American culture. We've probably thought of hospitality as entertainment 
You need to remove that idea. The best example in the Bible is actually in Genesis, and Hebrews refers to it, and I've got that for you in your notes. I didn't give you the text for today, but I gave you this one because I don't want you to miss it. In your notes, Hebrews 13, 1 to 3, I want to read this text, right? This is the end of the Hebrews letter, right? And at the end of a letter, right, you're, 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 he's, the author is throwing out all these reminders or implications of the things he's talked about. And here's what he says. He, he's talking about how the reality of the Christian faith should work itself out in how we care for people. And in verse one, he talks about loving one another as brothers and sisters. Like, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters, then in two, he talks about hospitality. And in verse three, I'll, start, I'll read that one next. He talks about those suffering. Remember verse, Hebrews 13, three. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. But in between those, your own brothers and sisters and the Christians you know who are suffering, in verse two, he talks about the strangers, people you don't know. Here's what he says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. Notice what it didn't say. It didn't say show hospitality to your annoying cousin who has to come over for the dinner. It didn't say anything about somebody you already went to high school with. It didn't mention, it, it said the word strangers. That's right, somebody you do not know. If you were to say to them, Sorry, can't help. You would feel no moral responsibility. If you said that to your 12-year-old, there could be an issue. But to your friend, they might push back. But to somebody in the street, you would not feel a moral responsibility. Hebrews says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. And then he gives an example of probably one of the most misread examples in the Bible. He says, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, I cannot tell you how many times people have thought, oh, isn't that cool? I'm being hospitable and I'm meeting an angel. Okay, that is not at all what Hebrews 13 is talking about. Hebrews 13 is giving an example that actually happened for somebody other than you. That's why I have that beautiful blue arrow, so you don't miss this. Genesis 18. Abraham is lounging on his front porch. The text says, Genesis 18.1, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. That is lemonade moment, right? He is drinking his lemonade. It's a hot, sunny day. He is not going to be out in the hot sun. It is too hot for that. It's the middle of the day. The work in, in that culture would have been done early morning and early evening, not the middle of the day. He knows it's not wise to be out. And what does he see? Verse 2, Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. They were coming. They're traveling. They're in the heat of the day. Now, the text lets you know, guess who that is? That's the appearing of the Lord. Here's one of these Bible Old Testament moments where the Lord manifests himself through the mediating work of a few angels. So it's the representatives of the Lord. They look human, but they're angels. But they're not with like wings or something standing there, right? They look like three guys walking by in the heat, but the text wants you to know what Abraham doesn't. These are angels of the Lord. How will he respond? Notice it doesn't say, then they waited, like Nabal the fool. What's it say? 
When he saw them, he hurried. Notice the time reference. He hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them. Like he ran out to them. And he bowed low to the ground. And he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, my Lord is just a way of saying, sir, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought. And then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me give you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Note that statement. The, mo- the very fact that he got, they got into Abraham's vicinity, he felt a pressure that he needed to respond. Hence the word neighbor every time Jesus uses it. Every time Jesus uses neighbor, he's saying, when in the providence of God, somebody in your vicinity, you recognize a need, you are to respond. So that is what Hebrews is talking about. He's not talking about the potential of you meeting an angel at all. He's talking about Abraham having already met an angel And the stranger and the angel reflects that God uses such moments for his providential purposes. Like in Genesis 18, it was God using that moment to see if Abraham was going to faithfully respond to these men when he didn't know that God had sent them. Do you see what Hebrews is saying to you? How will you respond, Christian, to all the people that you will meet when you don't know why you are the one that bumped into them or even what they fully may need. But will you respond like Abraham with a spirit of hospitality or will you just hoard for yourself? So again, don't think angels, think strangers. Think God's providential encounters and the people you meet. So how should a Christian develop and mature in their ministry of biblical hospitality? The answer is a bit more simple than we might think. You and I don't have half a billion dollars like Patrick Mahomes, but biblical hospitality isn't just for the rich. Biblical hospitality is you giving an extension of yourself to others. You're extending what you already have and who you already are to the people who providentially are in some way bumping into you and your life and your family. So let me offer you 10 brief common ways to develop and mature in biblical hospitality, things you already have and own. Number one, use your eyes. Use your eyes. Look for the needs of those around you. You can see every Sunday morning there are people who sit alone and you may come with nine people. You're not coming alone. Put yourself in their perspective and ask, maybe I should sit near them. Maybe I should connect with them in some way. Use your eyes and see if people are hurting, if people are wounded. Use your eyes and respond to what you see. Second, use your mouth. Ask if you can help someone. Ask someone their name, even if you've forgotten it twice already, because you're human. 
And because we are so focused on ourselves, we ask the name because we're like, oh good, I asked the right question. And then when they're saying it, you're worried about what you're supposed to say next and you didn't even hear their name. Right? Welcome to being human. Ask. Talk. Invite someone to your home. Invite someone out to lunch. Third, use your hands. Serve people in need. I love the story told at Mike Butts' funeral just last week. Love this story. His neighbor comes up to give testimony. Imagine if that was you, right? Imagine, we're going to ask your neighbor of our choosing to come up and give a testimony about living next to you for 33 years. Right? I love this. This neighbor of 30 years comes up during Mike Butts' funeral. Mike, Mike was an elder in this church, if you don't, don't know, and he just passed away just a couple weeks ago. Huge loss, obviously, to many of us and to our church family. And our service was here, and it was beautiful. And his neighbor comes up, and he tells this story that just struck me. I was sitting right over there, and I'm literally holding back tears because he was so caring for this widow across the street that she didn't even go to the front door. The garage door is open. She walks in the garage, and she knocks on the, on the back door of the garage. Mike is on the phone doing work. He opens the door. She sees it on the phone, so she just lifts up a jar she can't open. I love this story. This neighbor right here told this story. He didn't even, he didn't even, he didn't even, he knew her so well, he didn't even say, oh, I need to call you back. No, he just kept talking, grabbed the jar, opened the jar for her and handed the jar back to her neighbor who just waved thank and then she went home. You don't get to a point in a relationship like that unless you've done that a hundred times. But that's what like a sister would do or a brother would do for one another. Like you just know them so well. That was not his sister. That was not a coworker. That wasn't like a second cousin or a daughter-in-law, that was his neighbor who lived across the street. And when she lost her husband, he mowed her grass. He fixed her leaky sink so that she knew she didn't even have to go to the front door. She's not a guest. She's going to respect and not just barge into the kitchen, but she's going to come to the garage because that's Mike and Dana's house, and they love me. That is so beautiful of an image of biblical hospitality. That's got some legs to it. Fourth, use your ears. Listen well. Listen to people. Maybe even under this category, I would say, ask good questions. Don't just always want to talk. Listen. Ask. How'd you meet Christ? Where'd you grow up? Tell me about your story. Tell me about your work. What do you do? What do you like about work? Like, how are you helping people or the community? Talk to me. Listen to people. Fifth, use your legs. Practice a ministry of visitation. As a church, we do this formally. We have staff and pastors and ministry leaders doing this. We have a visitation team. But I, I almost want to frame it this way. Visitation should be as common among Christians as handshakes are in the business world. Like, that should just become the norm. And again, right, we're not front porch people anymore. We're back patio, right? Like, we're, we're, we're not that way. That is hard for us to do. We, of all cultures, we want the most personal space if 24 inches, and now it's growing, right? Like, we want a good three feet. Although I do not want to smell dentine on you at all. Like, I do not want Colgate coming toward me. I need a good three feet 
Give me my space. You have to work hard to fight that cultural bent in you and even in one another, but visit people. I cannot tell you, I have spoken to people in our church body who are literally craving hugs. Now think about that for a second. There are your brothers and sisters. They just want to hug. Visit people. Do you have two arms and a chest cavity? You can give hugs. Think about that. Can you imagine if that was your little sister that was craving a hug? Or one of your children that was craving a touch? Six, use your home. Invite people over. Use a spare bedroom. Be willing to host with a normal mess. You're not hosting the king of England. And if you're worried about your mess, just tell them to take pictures of their living room before they come over and show you on their cell phone. We are so strange in our perfectionism of what is just normal humanity. If you have a pile somewhere in a room, you are probably normal. If you don't have a pile, then I would want to figure out how you do that. So the reality is, think about how much we think about ourselves. So that it's like fine china rather than the normal gracious hospitality of life on life. Number seven, use your calendar. In our busy world today, time and the sharing of time may have become one of the greatest gifts. We're probably more willing to share money for some of us than time. And your calendars are so full with all your events because your kids and mine are going to be soccer stars or the Olympic gymnastics or Harvard graduates. We're so busy, we have no time for a conversation with somebody. Because do you know what lonely people will do? They're going to be the talkers in a grocery store. Because they're lonely and they've been sitting alone for 12 hours and when they go to Schnucks, they want to start a conversation. And you and I, with our overly busy schedules, are darn right annoyed. Talk to people. Give your time. Have time in your calendar so that you have space to be hospitable. Eight, use your wallet. Your money, brothers and sisters, does not belong to you. Proof of this is when you die, you do not take it with you. Your money is to be used for the uses God assigns or places before you. When he bumps, when somebody bumps into you, like these men with Abraham or David and his men with Nabal, use your resources without knowing if they're going to spend it well, right? Without, without economic kind of values, be hospitable. My friend, Rick Langer tells this, he does, living in LA area, he always has a coin purse with coins that you get when you're using cash and he gets 13 cents back. He fills his coin purse, fills his coin purse. And every time, every time he gets asked on the street for money, which in LA is going to happen a lot, he always dumps his entire coin purse out. So keeps filling this coin purse. Always. That doesn't mean he wouldn't give more at certain times, but here was his reasoning. His reasoning wasn't economic. Well, that will clearly be the thing that saves them. He didn't always know, are they going to use it for the right reasons or not? Here is his reason that he gave, and I heard them give this to a bunch of college kids in a lecture over 10 years ago now. He says, I actually do it for myself so my heart doesn't get hardened. 
because I'm walking by people all the time, and you know what I'm doing? I'm trying to avoid eye contact, and I'm trying not to give. And I find myself getting a hard heart. And so I want to make sure you kind of grease the wheel by practice of giving. And imagine, even in here, I'm not talking about living in L.A., how many of us have not practiced sacrificial giving? And I'm not just saying because all the world needs your money. Brother says the Lord has a cattle on a thousand hills. I'm saying that because your heart will turn to stone. And you will face the judgment of the king. Number nine, use your talent. Let your skills and your gifts be used as gifts to others. They do not belong to you. They belong to the king. And number 10, use your position your place in life, your place of work, your unique situation is often the way God intends for you to serve others. He intended that to be Nabal's use. He is this wealthy man, wealthier than anyone in the region. And the future king comes. He didn't quite know all that. Having been hounded by the current king, And instead of being overly hospitable with things that he wouldn't have even felt the loss of, he decides to hoard. So which are you? Are you and I the fool? Or are we like Abigail, who brings joy to the Father in the way that we serve others? I love that statement she makes to David. And may her words be ours. I am your servant. And I am ready to serve. That is what this text wants us to hear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that ministers to us each and every day. Thank you that we can come in here and read it and study it and grow from it. Lord, protect us from the judgment of greed of control, even the judgment of protective isolation that doesn't allow us to love the stranger. We've been, we've been teaching our children or have been taught ourselves stranger danger. How are we supposed to love them now? How are we supposed to greet and be generous and have them in our homes? We need wisdom for the details and specifics, but please don't make us become the fool and the stone-hearted who doesn't see that Jesus was a stranger and he aligns himself with the stranger and he says to his own people, where were you when I was hungry? Or where were you when I was thirsty? Or where were you when I was imprisoned? Father, may we not be the fool. May we be the children of God who bring joy to the Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.